This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts here with your weekly update on what in the world is going on and what you need to know to keep yourself and your family safe in this increasingly toxic world. On our show today, we'll talk about wireless radiation, how exposure to this type of low-level radiation can cause a whole constellation of physical symptoms that can become completely debilitating. And we'll talk about the new effort to put a single label on this syndrome, which is known as microwave sickness, or microwave radiation sickness, or electromagnetic hypersensitivity, or EMS, or... Well, you get the idea. That story and the headlines of the week all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. I mean, do you feel fine most of the time when you're in your home or apartment? Or do you have frequent headaches, unexplained bouts of dizziness or nausea? Do you have ringing in your ears or trouble sleeping? Tens of thousands of people across the country and around the world have begun to experience symptoms like these, as well as feelings of exhaustion, brain fog, inability to concentrate. If this sounds familiar to you, then my next question is, have you considered the possibility that it's the wireless radiation in your environment that is causing those symptoms? The radiation from your phone, the radiation from your wireless router, the radiation from your baby monitor, your wireless doorbell, or your wireless speakers, or even the radiation emitted by the digital utility meter that you may not even realize is attached to your home or apartment. Ruth Fennessy Moss lives in a suburb of New York City and, like most people, had never considered that the radiation coming from wireless devices was making her sick. I was, you know, full-time worker, senior VP, creative director in an advertising company, but I never had any issues with electromagnetics until uh, they put a smart meter on my house. Just about that time, I began to feel flu-like symptoms all the time. I thought, eventually, I said, I must have some terrible disease. And it seemed to be, over time, getting worse. I was just feeling horrible all the time. And one day, someone said to me, maybe it's your smart meter. And I said, what's a smart meter? And they said, well, it's the electrical meter that your utility company puts on the side of your house to measure electricity. So honestly, that was the craziest thing I ever heard. How could a little meter on the side of my house cause me to be having these kind of symptoms? So I dismissed that, went home, and then, you know, something was eating away at me, and I called someone who I knew was aware of all these things. I said, could a smart meter make someone sick? And his response was, well, how do you know you have a smart meter? And I said, I have no idea. How would I know? And he said, well, it has to say FCC on it. If it doesn't say FCC, it's probably an analog meter, analog being an old-fashioned simple meter. And so I went outside, and I put my face right in front of that meter to see, because the writing on it was very, very tiny. It took me about 30 seconds to finally find FCC. 
at that point, now you have to understand, I was completely not believing that this thing could bother me. At that point, I felt a thud in my chest that practically knocked me three feet, four feet back. And I, like almost like I'd been hit by a vehicle. I went in the house very quickly, went to call my husband because I thought, what the hell just happened? I could not pick up my cell phone. As soon as my arm went almost to the cell phone, it was as though a lightning bolt was coming out at me, honestly, and causing extreme head pain. So that was the beginning. That was the moment that I became electrically sensitive. Then I went through a horrific six months where I was so sensitized I could not even have the lights on uh, in my kitchen. Uh, I cooked under candlelight for six months. And I, at first I couldn't drive a car. Gradually my immune system picked up and I got somewhat better. But I have never since then been able to tolerate being in Wi-Fi. We had to you know, go to ethernet in our house. I was very disturbed in other places that I would go with Wi-Fi and cell towers are the absolute worst. Cell towers and Wi-Fi for me. When this happened, my headaches were revving up now day by day. What I understood later was that when this kind of thing happened, it oversensitizes you. So it was sensitive to begin with, and it made me so sensitized that it couldn't be in my house at all. And every day, I would, I would have to actually hang out outside the house. And then when I'd come in, the headaches would start building up. I'd have to get through the night of sleep. And you expect that it'll be the same way each day when you have a problem, right? You think, okay, now I'll do the same thing tomorrow to, to adapt. But in this case, every day was getting worse. So I was calling my utility company every day and basically saying, I have a medical emergency. You have to get over here immediately and take this meter off my house. That was my message. I happened to get a sympathetic representative, and so she was working to get her supervisors to do this. While Ruth was trying to get her utility company to come and replace her digital utility meter with a reliable and non-radiating analog meter, Two states away, a commission was being formed to look into the issue of radiofrequency radiation and human health. The commission, formed by the New Hampshire legislature, was supposed to review the independent science and see if exposure to wireless radiation was indeed harmful. University professor and electrical engineer Dr. Kent Chamberlain served on the commission. I started off in this, you know, without any knowledge of electromagnetic sensitivity, as the chair of the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of New Hampshire. My area of expertise is electromagnetics, and so I studied radio waves and propagation and antennas. And my belief at that time, which was you know, to, before 2019, was that wireless radiation, the type you get from your cell phone, was basically harmless. Yeah, I knew that you really shouldn't hold your phone up to your ear 24-7, but again, my feeling was that, yeah, low levels, having your phone on you, nothing to worry about at all. The intent of the commission was to find out the, I'll put this in quotes, truth 
end quote, about wireless radiation and its harms. And that was a real eye-opener for me because I, as I mentioned, had followed the conventional wisdom, and that was the conventional wisdom put out by industry, wireless radiation is harmless. And they'll tell you this, wireless radiation does not have any impact at all. So I had heard that for my whole career, and frankly, it was a convenient thing to believe because I didn't have to worry about it, nor the products that I was helping to create. But serving on the commission, we looked at, we did a deep dive. It was a year-long commission. We brought in experts. We did a deep dive into the literature. And it was pretty clear that, yes, the radiation from phones and cell towers and the like, and your baby monitor, your wireless baby monitor, is harmful. And it can cause a number of problems. And one of those problems is hypersensitivity. What you just heard from Ruth is a great example, and it's not like it's a unique story. It's a, there are a huge number of people who are sensitive. And so as part of not only the commission itself, but the follow-on when we were trying to implement legislation is we heard from lots and lots of people who have this sensitivity issue. So the commission in New Hampshire, talking to experts and ordinary folks and taking a close look at the available independent literature, was discovering the exact kind of symptoms that Ruth had been experiencing. I and the other members of the commission, as indicated in our final report, realize that this sensitivity, the type of sensitivity you heard from from Ruth, is real, is very real, and it is causing huge uh, and significant degradation to people's lives. And so this harmful condition is a problem for a lot of people. But I need to also state very clearly that even though some people have acute reactions, like you heard from about Ruth, it affects everybody who's exposed. And the way it affects us is through oxidative stress. So it causes an increase in free radicals in anybody who is exposed. Not necessarily the, the radical, the acute effects like Ruth has, but it does affect us, our health. Meanwhile, Ruth Moss was still calling her utility company, trying to get them to come and replace her digital meter with an analog meter. I'm continuing to call day after day and getting, you know, nowhere, basically. Putting me off, telling me they had no analog meters left, this kind of thing. So I finally decided I was going to drive off to the Catskills and try to find a place to stay because I couldn't, I couldn't be in the house anymore. The headaches were getting so severe, I thought I was going to have brain damage. I called a um, friend over to the house who was an electrician, and he said to me, you are not leaving your house. And, and, and then I realized how crazy that was, that I was going to drive to the Catskills. What was I thinking? That I was going to let my utility company have domain over me, that I would have to, at my age, and you know, everything I put into this house, I'm going to be forced to leave my house. And he convinced me how, you know, I'm, then I began to see how crazy an idea that was. So I continued to call, and I'm a very persistent person when I've made up my mind to be one. And I just kept at them till finally the supervisor said, okay, and made a date to come and do this. The day that they were coming was literally the last day I could spend any time in the house. I called around 4 o'clock. I was there from 8 o'clock in the morning waiting for them. 4 o'clock, I called the utility company, and I said, 
when are you coming? I've been here all day. And the representative said, oh, ma'am, uh, I'm sorry, that, that uh, appointment was canceled. And I said to her, well, then, I guess you understand I have to take matters into my own hands. And she said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> so I got off the phone and I said, you know, it's either it's either me or the utility company. And I decided that I was going to be the one that was going to win on this one. As you can hear by the conviction in her voice, Ruth Moss was not about to give up. With the help of an electrician friend and advice from an attorney, Ruth found and purchased an analog meter for her home and had the digital meter replaced with the analog meter. So I wrote a letter with the help of the attorney, of course, into the utility company telling them exactly what happened and adding to that letter uh, what that nice representative had said to me when I overheard her talking to her supervisor once. It was sort of a glitch on the phone, and I was able to hear their whole conversation, in which she asked the supervisor, look, she said, this woman is going to keep calling. She's not going to stop. Why don't we just give her what she wants? And he said, if I give it to her, she's going to tell all her neighbors, and within two weeks, I'm going to have a 100 requests in my inbox asking for analog meters. He said, I can't do it. I, I can't set a precedent. He said, well, okay, but she's going to keep calling. The wireless industry is a trillion-dollar industry, and the industry doesn't like bad news, especially news about scientific studies showing that exposure to wireless radiation can be harmful to your health. In fact, the industry has sponsored hundreds of studies which show, coincidentally, that there is no harm from exposure. Here's Dr. Kent Chamberlain again. As you can imagine, over the years, I've gone to a lot of presentations by industry, and their claim to this very day is that the only articles that show harm, any harm, from wireless radiation exposure are those that are cherry-picked from fringe journals. Now, that's quite a statement. In fact, I had heard that before I was on the commission, so one of the first things I did was to look at whether or not <laughs> what they said was true. And so it wasn't just me working on my own, not at all. Remember, this is part of a commission, a 13-member commission. So we had other people looking at the, the uh, literature. Are these articles that are showing harm from radiation, are they junk science? And we spent some time on it. We got to be kind of a philosophical question. Can you create junk science? And the answer is yes, you can. But here's what it takes to do it. And here's how you can determine whether or not it is junk science. So, uh, And that, again, is something that would take a while to describe in greater detail. But the bottom line is that we were able to determine very conclusively that the articles that showed harm from wireless radiation, first of all, were not from junk science journals, hardly. They had the, the people who, who were on the editorial staff, the reviewers, the, the authors themselves had you know, very good pedigrees, and they didn't have a conflict of interest, as do the people from industry. We first of all determined that there are a lot of articles, hundreds of articles from top-tier journals that show harm. And then, then the second question that goes along with it is, were they cherry-picked? And the answer is definitely not. In fact, the majority of articles, over 90% of the articles describing research that looked into the oxidative effects, you know, the generation of free radicals, over 90% of them said that there was an effect. And these are not junk science, period. 
Once the smart meter had been removed from her home, Ruth was better but continued to suffer symptoms whenever she was exposed to wireless radiation, in stores, in public buildings, in trains and planes, and especially from cell towers. Through her network, she met others who were experiencing the same symptoms, headaches, dizziness, nausea, brain fog, disorientation. As she was leading a local fight to adopt a new zoning code for the deployment of cell antennas in her community, she realized that although many people had symptoms similar to hers, everyone was calling it something different. The first thing I read, I thought that was it. But then I read something else, heard something else, and noticed that there were five to ten different names being used to describe this from electromagnetic sensitivity to microwave syndrome, electrohypersensitivity, all different names. And at first I thought maybe they were different conditions. I finally realized no. But I knew because of my marketing background that this was crazy. Why doesn't everybody just decide on one name? I mean, how far would any disease communication get if they had several names, the same disease, like a little nutty? So I had been talking about it for a year and a half with national advocates in casual conversations. So that's how we began and eventually got a few other of these advocates to join the team. And then really wonderfully and surprisingly and happily, Kent Chamberlain joined the team. What is it that you have? Is it an acquired bioreactivity? That's one that suggested uh, adverse biodisruption is another kind of a category. Is it a syndrome? Is it poisoning? People don't like the hyper in electromagnetic hypersensitivity, but we do want to have something that is going to get the attention of people. It's going to be usable by, you know, under one name. We also want it to be something we can use with the lawmakers. So we want something that's medically and legally correct that has gravitas when we mention it to people as being a descriptor for something that they have. There's a lot of work that has to be done and it all begins with coming together under one name. I've learned to say I was injured by electromagnetic radiation. Uh, and then they say, really, what happened? And then I explain what happened and they say, I never heard of that. So when we get to the point where that response is, oh yes, I've heard of that. Right now, it's still a lot of I've never heard of that. We want to get those ordinary people to have heard of it. Ruth Moss and Dr. Kent Chamberlain leading a new effort to educate the world about wireless radiation called the One Name Project. You can learn more about the project and join the conversation online at this special URL. It's onename.groups.io. That's onename.groups.io. Patty and I will be right back with the week's headlines. Don't go away. Okay, so what's in the news this week? Well, there's a new study that shows that more than 900 common chemicals are linked to an increased risk of breast cancer. Hmm. The study identified 921 chemicals that could potentially increase the risk of breast cancer and found that 90 percent 
are commonly found in consumer products, food and drinks, pesticides, medications, and workplaces. The list includes chemicals like parabens and phthalates, which are found in makeup, skin, and hair care products, and numerous pesticide ingredients, including malathion, atrazine, and trichloper, which are used on food and in household pest control products. Mm. In the last decade, the incidence of breast cancer among young women 30 to 39 years old has increased almost 20%. This is a significant yeah, that's a increase, big increase in a young in how, group. how many years? In the last decade, which is just wow. 10 years. In 10 years. This dramatic change is too fast to be explained by genetics, so researchers have begun looking more closely at potential environmental causes. A 2020 study found that women who use chemical hair straighteners more than six times a year had about a 30% higher risk of breast cancer than those who didn't use chemical straighteners. Mm. Those products typically contain one or more of the chemicals identified in the new study as increasing the chances of getting breast cancer. Women of color face greater risk. Studies have shown that products marketed to women of color tend to be more toxic and are more likely to contain chemicals associated with increased cancer risk compared to products marketed to white women. Let's wow. talk about this for a minute. They're called hair straighteners or perm relaxers, and they all contain formaldehyde. And formaldehyde is a probable human carcinogen. Mm. We've been trying to get formaldehyde out of products all over the place, but not in these hair straighteners because it's a very important ingredient in these beauty products that um, is effective. It's a very important ingredient that's effective at doing what they're trying to do. So just Mm. crazy Crazy numbers of women of color are using these hair straightener products. And crazy numbers of, of women are getting breast cancer. That's right. I'm still stuck on that 20% increase in 10 years. 20% increase in 10 years. In, in what age group, Patty? 30 to 39 years old. Wow. Right. Wow. Okay. We've, we've known about this for so long. It is, it is time to do something. It is absolutely time to do something when there is a clear link between these particular chemicals in these hair straightening products and a higher rate of breast cancer in women who use them regularly. No question. Jeez. What do you have? I have a thing about glyphosate. We've talked about glyphosate a lot on this show. Well, now the farm workers are getting together and asking the EPA to immediately suspend and cancel the federal government's approval for the herbicide glyphosate, an active ingredient in Monsanto's Roundup weed killer. In a petition filed with the EPA, six groups, including the Center for Food Safety and the Farm Workers Association of Florida, asked for immediate action that would make selling or using the chemical illegal until the EPA thoroughly analyzes glyphosate's health and environmental risk. The EPA did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The you know, EPA knows. The the everybody EPA knows. knows. Everybody across the planet everybody knows, knows that glyphosate is... causes cancer. Look at all these lawsuits that Monsanto is going through. Yeah, they, they, they've all lost, these lawsuits they've of... lost some major lawsuits. Yep. And, and, and they will continue to lose lawsuits. People are getting lymphoma and leukemia and all kinds of cancers from using glyphosate products, including Roundup, by the way. Let's just mention that so that this very common herbicide that is used all over the place by individuals, not just on far, not just farm workers, but individuals, homeowners are using glyphosate in that product Roundup. Well, you've, yeah, you've seen the guy with comes out, you know, they have the Western music and the guy comes out holding the little can of glyphosate and sprays it on the dandelion, the one dandelion that's sticking up out of his sidewalk. 
It's ridiculous. I mean, he could reach down and pick the dandelion, but he doesn't do that. But, well, everybody it. knows that glyphosate causes cancer. You know, so this and, is and this it, is I'm glad to very the, problematic. I'm glad to see the farm workers organizing around this because yeah. the farm workers are going to have some political muscle here that could be really important in pushing the EPA along. Why is it taking so long? Why can't they pull because this product the off the market? Because the EPA is owned by the industry. <sighs> All right. Anyway, that's my news item. What else you got? This is about endocrine disrupting chemicals. Again, again, Here again. We go. Here okay? we go again. Yep. They how do they evade meaningful regulation? Well, glittery epoxy art kits that you mix at home to create translucent resin art projects are all the rage online and in arts and craft stores. Rarely will the warning labels tell you, however, that they're loaded with an endocrine-disrupting chemical called bisphenol A diglycidyl ether, known as BADGE. BADGE, like its cousin bisphenol A, also known as BPA, shows an ability to hack the body's hormones and cause significant harm. Yet Europe's new food safety guidelines that essentially ban BPA and a few other bisphenols from food contact materials allow hundreds of other endocrine-disrupting chemicals to avoid any regulation. Food safety experts point out that under the new European rules, manufacturers can continue swapping out BPA for another bisphenol chemical that may be just as bad. This is this is whack-a-mole, right? This always, is we're doing one always, chemical at a time. This is and, like PFAS substances. There are yeah. fifteen thousand of them. Bisphenols are another class of chemicals that should be literally banned as a class. Yeah, I think it's PFAS like, banned as a class. Bisphenol A and bisphenol F and bisphenol S X. and bisphenol yeah, this and, and that. And, yeah, you know. and we're finding out that you know parents who are thinking that they're doing the right thing by buying a plastic water bottle for their kid that says BPA free is just buying another, you know, bisphenol uh, chemical another. that is just as harmful as BPA. And these are endocrine disrupting. So these are going to mm -hmm. interfere with a child's, you know, growth potential. All the things that regulate how the body works. Endocrine disrupting chemicals disrupt you know. so much of our body's functions. It's amazing, which is why it's such a huge area especially of research. Especially for kids. I know, Especially absolutely. for, you know, kids that are just growing. Well, ask whether the Food and Drug Administration would reevaluate the safety of BPA given the proposed European dramatic drop in a safe intake level. A spokesperson responded, quote, based on FDA's safety review of the scientific evidence, the available information continues to support the safety of BPA for the currently approved uses in food containers and packaging, end quote. Oh, man. Can you imagine? Yep. How do these people sleep at night? That's, that's what I want to know. They go home at the end of the day and, hi, honey, and they have a nice dinner and go yep. to sleep. Really? Yep. Some states have bans on BPA in baby bottles, sippy cups, and water bottles, but those laws typically don't cover BPA substitutes like bisphenol S or bisphenol A like we were just talking about. Only Washington State bans bisphenols as a class, with one exception for terramethyl bisphenol F from drink cans, laundry detergents, and thermal paper like that used for register receipts. So, I don't get it, so because that is such a major yeah. exposure. So we're, a allowing major it. Exposure. we're allowing it in those products. In those, things, that's, those are the exceptions, even though they're some of the most ubiquitous exposure opportunities, right? Fred Vomsal, professor emeritus of biological sciences at the University of Missouri, says, quote, the problem with BPA is it doesn't seem to have a threshold below which it doesn't cause any effects. Mm. I don't think there's a safe level for exposure to BPA, period. Yeah, there you go. 
Fred Vomsal, he's been on this for a while. That's great. Yeah. All right. I mean, this is why I say at the beginning of the show, this is, we're going to talk about the things that you need to know to protect yourself and your family, because the government's not doing it. Yeah, the government's not doing it because they're being pressured by the industry. This is the final thing that I have to say about this. So why has BPA been able to avoid regulation? According to the National Institutes of Health, BPA is one of the highest volume chemicals produced in the world with a market value of $20 billion. And there you go. That end of, end of discussion. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Special thanks to our guests, Ruth Moss and Dr. Kent Chamberlain, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Wyman, associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.